I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. In 2018, the Woolsey Fire consumed huge swaths of Los Angeles and Ventura County in California. The fire burned nearly 100,000 acres and destroyed thousands of structures. This was one of several fires in California at the same time. FEMA responds to disasters of all kinds, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, and others, but wildfires pose a variety of unique challenges. The speed and sheer destruction are nothing short of terrifying. Often, nothing is left in their wake. Survivor stories are often harrowing and heartbreaking, but even within the destruction, there are opportunities for hope and resilience. On this episode, we talk with journalist Adriana Cargill, founder of Wavemaker Media, about her podcast, Sandcastles, a new podcast that dives into the gripping story of the Point Doom bombers during the Woolsey fires in California. The story is heartbreaking, thrilling, and inspirational. Over five episodes, Adriana beautifully tells the story of a community coming together amidst the devastation of the wildfires. I'm just really thrilled to to be joined by Adriana Cargill. Uh, Adriana, thanks so much. Uh, the the host of the podcast Sandcastles. I'm uh, I'm thrilled for this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. I, I think uh, at least a lot of folks on the uh, the the people who listen to our podcast uh, in the emergency management community are probably pretty familiar with the uh, 2018 uh, wildfire season in California, but. You know, your podcast really dives into um, the the situation surrounding the Woolsey fire and uh, and the impacts that it had on the community and, and the way that the community sort of thrived through the, the tragedy. So, you know, t- just tell us a little bit about the background of the fire, um, the communities, what was going on at that time and um, and set the set the context. Yeah, so. November 8th, 2018 was quite the day for the state of California. Um, That day, we actually had three major wildfires start. We had the Hill Fire in Ventura County, the Woolsey Fire, which is the focus of my podcast, but then also the Camp Fire in Paradise, which I think many people are familiar with because up until the Maui fires, it was the most deadly in modern history. And I'll also say that in Ventura County, the day before there was a mass shooting. So from an emergency first responder perspective, this is the perfect storm. This is multiple big fires, public emergencies, everything's happening at the same time. Um, And so what ends up happening with Woolsey is um, it was started, uh, you know, partially by Santa Ana winds, which if you're unfamiliar with uh, those winds here in Southern California, they're hot winds that blow from the desert, usually in the fall. Um, they're the cause behind a lot of our red flag days. When those winds start blowing, people here are always on high alert for fires. So perfect storm recipes there, it happens. Um, and most of my podcast, Sandcastles, looks at the Woolsey fire specifically and Malibu as a neighborhood. And Maybe for listeners on the East Coast or other places in the U.S., you sort of have this idea that Malibu is a bunch of rich people living on the beach. That is true. 
but that is a very small part of Malibu. And actually most of it is working class folks that kind of have ranch backgrounds that have been there for around a hundred years. And it's in steep, like rocky canyons. So it's very hard terrain for emergency first responders to get to. And, and I really focus my story around working class Malibu and a lot of the people in those areas. You paint a, a great picture about the the stretched resources, uh, you know, based on the uh, the number of fires that were going on at the time. And, and we're, I think we're going to get to that in, in a little bit. But you did a great job in the series painting the picture of the, the topography. Um, I didn't quite realize, because I'm from the Midwest, how maybe little coastline is in uh, Malibu itself and how many of the folks uh, that live there are not you know, on the coast, you know, when we're looking, you know, at the news, uh, or, you know, the little bit that we see of Malibu, we think of everybody beachfront. Yeah, no. And most of the area of the, the people that live in Malibu is actually in the Santa Monica mountain range. So it's like actually in the craggly mountains and these canyons. I mean, when John Muir visited there in the 1800s, he said it was the most rugged place he'd ever been. And you know, if you're familiar with John Muir, he was one of the huge naturalists and explorers who went all over the West. And, you know, if he said this was like one of the hardest, then, you know, it really, it's, it's quite steep. I mean, it's like a, it's, it's very like dry and deserty and there aren't a lot of paths. And of course this makes it really difficult for communications and also evacuation routes in this area. Going back historically, you you make the point that even the fire services were not close to the uh, the coast, right? Yeah, no, and you know Malibu only incorporated as a city in 1991, um, and there's still just about 13,000 people there, so it's it's actually like a really small town. That's not the image that we have of it, but it's it's a small town, mostly up in the hills, and you know they, for example, like their nearest. Sheriff's Department, their police enforcement is on the other side of the mountains in the valley. Like they don't even have, you know, their own services and for they contract their police from LA County. So, you know, this is a very, you know, we think of it just being outside of Los Angeles, but outside of Los Angeles gets rural very quick. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously the, the, the focus of your story is about how the community that's there comes together and, and rallies to, to meet the needs of, uh, maybe not necessarily just the wildfires, but you know, a lot of the, the, the needs of a community that we often, um, rely on services for. And so, the focus of the story is on uh, a group called the Point Doom Bombers, and so could you tell me tell me about the story behind them and and really the inspiration for this new era of Point Doom Bombers and how they grew? Yeah, so um, just to back it up a second, the Point Doom itself is like a shark fin shaped neighborhood that kind of like juts out onto the coast, and it's this triangle shape of land, and then it's sort of cut off by a highway, which is called the PCH California One. That's right there, um, and the name the Point Doom Bombers comes from a surf click in the '60s and '70s that really in their view, protected the point from outsiders. And so as we talked about, you know, Malibu's quite rural. There's not a lot of public services back then. There's a very small population. And so people kind of lived in a way where they just 
took care of things themselves. And they have this very deep set mentality of take matters into your own hands and do it yourself. Don't rely on anyone else. And this particular surf group, you know, they started kind of policing who's on the beach, you know, who's in the surf lineup, who's fishing things in the ocean, then it's maintaining beach trails. And it, and it also becomes sort of um, protecting it from outsiders, which is something we sort of refer to as surf localism, um, which actually can be quite negative, but that is just one side of the history of this group. And, um, you know, this sort of taking care of your community doesn't stop with just sort of everyday maintenance. Really, they viewed also wildfires or any natural disasters that came as something they would also protect their community from. And so this new generation of Point Dune bombers during the Woolsey fire, when emergency first responders were stretched super thin, you know, they just sort of stepped up to fill the resource gap, not really knowing what they were doing, but just this is the culture of the place that they were from. They saw a need and they wanted to help their community. And so they sort of took on this name as a reference to this older group of people, many of which like they're the sons of those original guys or the grandsons of them, depending on the generation. So it's it's a name that has a lot of cultural significance for the people in this particular neighborhood and and people in the community and the Point Doom Bombers, I think themselves saw what they were doing as a continuation of the culture that ha had always been there. So this new generation of Point Doom Bombers, who are some of the characters that you introduce the listener to throughout the podcast? Yeah, so there's about 30-ish guys in this sort of new generation. Um, and one of them that I spent a lot of time with was Keegan Gibbs. And so he grew up surfing on the point. Everybody in the story grew up surfing with him and he really becomes a leader in this group. And, and, um, on the night of the Woolsey fire, he lost his family home. It, it burned down and he actually found out by watching it on the news. Um, yeah, he was with his family at a hotel and the news TVs were on and he looked up and that was their house with a reporter in front of it. So, um, you know, he, he could have you know, stayed with his family in the hotel, sort of dealt with his loss and moved on with his life. But he did not choose that. In fact, the next day, super early in the morning, he met up with some of his friends and they dressed as lifeguards and basically snuck past the roadblocks, got back into Malibu. And he just drove around trying to figure out what he could do. And then that turned into putting out spot fires and setting up a donation center. And, and one of the things that they did, um, was they, they were getting a lot of supplies and stuff that they really didn't need that were coming in through these boats because there's mandatory evacuations. So all of the roads, roads were closed, the power of the water was off. And so people really needed food, water, um, in order to keep fighting spot fires there and defending their homes. And so they started an online campaign. They raised a bunch of money. After the fire was over, they still had some money left. And to me, this is where it gets really interesting because again, he has the choice where he's done a lot. He could just move on. Right. And so instead he has a conversation with the Point Doom bombers and his friends and says, you know, what should we do with this money? And, you know, we could distribute it to people who are underinsured and, 
he's just like, he has this thought in his head of, but what's that going to do for the next fire? There's going to be another fire. Like we have to find a way to live differently or this is going to keep happening. And so then he embarks on this really four-year journey and he brings his friend group along of creating this new model. And, you know, for me, that was incredibly inspiring and also something that really developed as I reported the story. When I first started talking to him, he wasn't thinking about that at all. It just sort of, he had this drive to protect his home and this devotion to his community that just, he, he followed into a completely new place. So the point of it is really that he is taking his own trauma and loss and turning it into learning that he can share with other people so that other people never have to go through what he went through. And I think that's really beautiful. Your podcast is named Sandcastles. And I, I'm curious because you make the point that you're not from the area. So what drove the inspiration for you to dive into this story? Yeah, so like you, I'm from the Midwest originally. So wildfires are completely foreign to me. Um, and at the time of the Woolsey fire, I was working at a public radio station called KCRW. And we sort of have these TVs blaring, kind of with the news of other channels. And it's just one day, like sort of, I don't remember exactly when, but after the Woolsey fire, I look up at the TV and I see like these surfers on longboards with like 50 pound generators and giant stacks of water, like fully surfing them in onto the Malibu coast. And I, it just like struck me, you know, like I just, I was so mesmerized by it. And I think, you know, I didn't see any first responders there. It just sort of looked like neighbors and friends and there was organization, but loosely, like I just, you know, it's like there's a few little scenes that I remember and it just really stuck with me. And I don't, I don't think I understood it at the time, but like in retrospect, um, I think the thing that really, that I saw like intuitively in my gut was resilience and was, you know, this was a moment of hope. And I think as a storyteller, I'm I'm really interested in climate stories. And I think a lot of them and, and wildfire stories in particular are really doom and gloom. And they're really like despair and they're depressing. And when people hear stories like that, if it's too heavy, if it's too dark, they just really shut off. And as a storyteller that I don't want, that's not how I want the stories I tell to land. I want people to feel empowered, hopeful, like they can do something. Um, and, and I think that's what Sand Castles is really trying to do. Absolutely. And, but, but it's so, um, I think well-researched, you, you really gain a lot of different perspectives. So how do you collect these stories? What was the process, you know, uh, as you got to know members of the community, did, did people introduce you to additional, um, you know, people that were there where they were involved? Yeah. So I sat on the story for a year. I had that moment, saw the things on the TV and just didn't do anything about it. <laughs> um, and it just kept being in the back of my head and I just couldn't let it go. And I kept being like, I want to know who those people are. Like, how do I find those people? And so I pitched like a one year later story, you know, just sort of like one year later, how's the community doing? But honestly, like I was always looking for them specifically and it didn't take very long. I just asked the first person I interviewed, 
hey, did you see this group of surfers in Point Doom? Do you know who they are? And they, and they were like, yeah, talk to this Malibu City Council member. And he was actually part of the group. And so then it just was one person to the next person to the next person. And each story I heard was m more incredible than the last. And I thought, okay, this is this can't fit into a 10-minute feature. This has to be a larger story. And in my mind, I thought, okay, maybe like a one-hour documentary. <laughs> It's hilarious in retrospect. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and so I just kept going from person to person and hearing stories. And this, of course, took months, you know, and it took years to gain the trust of the older generation in particular. The, in the second episode, I talked to a lot of the original Point Doom Bombers from the 60s and 70s, and those they were really hard to convince to talk to like it took legit years to be able to make that work um you know because malibu is a very closed community like <laughs> they have no reason to talk to you they have nothing to gain you know um and only downside mostly from their perspective because if you don't tell their story right if you mess it up you know it's just you know so it took a long time to build trust and along the way you know I don't think even my characters that I feature thought that they would end up pioneering a new model for living with wildfires and, and a new way of community resilience. It's just, it's something that evolved while I was reporting the process. So the story kept getting longer and longer. Um, so yeah, I mean, I really, I'd, I'd say, you know, in doing that story, it was just a lot of putting in the time with this community and building trust. All right. So, you know, as you're collecting these stories, there had to be some that were particularly inspirational or like really drew you in. Was there any, you know, moment or, you know, story that you heard that really captivated you? Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to choose, but I think one that really stands out to me is so as the fire's approaching, they give evacuation orders. And you can hear, I have little clips of them that I took from video that um, some of my characters took, where you can hear, you know, the police sirens being like, evacuate now, get out, the fire's at this place, you know, the, the fire's advancing, and, and they don't leave. And there's this sort of mentality also among certain people in Malibu where you just don't leave during fires and, and you stay and you defend. And you know, the, the younger generation people that I featured in, in this part were um, Sam McGee and Bo Bigelow. And they really have been taught their whole lives to stay, but they weren't as experienced as the older generation. And so they decide to stay and defend the homes. And, you know, at one point, they just get overwhelmed by the fire. And then there's power lines down and their escape routes blocked. And there's this very dramatic moment where they're just trying to find a way out of Point Doom to safety, which is Zuma Beach, which is a, a giant, it's very close. And it's this giant, um, basically area where there's no trees and, and nothing around it. And so you're, you're quite far from anything that would be burning. And, and they get down there. And then Sam is just taken by this, just this urge. Like if, if his house is still standing, there's a chance, right? And so then not 
really knowing what to do. He finds a friend who is actually works for the fire department and is a wildland firefighter who gives him a bunch of gear that he puts on as a disguise. They sneak back through the blocks into Point Doom and they're, you know, just like defending the house. They don't, the fire is all around them. They don't know what to do. And then suddenly one of the original Point Doom bombers shows up. His name is um, Tim Biglow. And Tim shows up and he's been through fires since the sixties, since he was a little kid. And he immediately organizes them. He like, you know, allocates the resources. He just, you know, it really, and his sort of mentality is his, his house is on the first line of houses hit from the highway. And so from his experience, he knows, you know, if your neighbor's houses are burning, it's likely that your house is burning, but if you can stop this first line and then if how homes are hardened, which we can talk about later, then it's less likely the community will burn. So he's really trying to do this frontline defense, not just for his own house, but for the whole neighborhood of Point Doom. And and to me, that as a storyteller, I was like, wow, like that, that is incredibly, that's a moment right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly we, um, in the emergency management community, really try to encourage people you know, not to, not to stay and fight, especially when there's just that uh, ever-present and sweeping movement of fire. Um, but the community, obviously, uh, you know, historically hasn't hasn't done that. So did they? Did anybody talk about, or did you have a sense of, you know, the the challenge in communicating that it's what what they were undertaking was dangerous and it was not uh maybe what uh their local officials were recommending the LA County Fire Department also knows that there's some people who stay for the fires and have for generations and that often those people are people who are prepared who have an emergency plan who have some experience in reading the terrain and reading fires. And so they're a little bit different than sort of the average person because they've done a, a lot of preparation and thinking and practice into this. So I think it's a little more complicated than just LA County wants everyone to get out there. There is this cultural element there um, that, that has had some success in the past. I'm really interested in is is what you describe as this new model of resilience or community resilience because yes of course we we want people to be safe we want people to continue to to follow the the lead of the local officials but the crux is we also want people to be incredibly resilient and we want people to be prepared um so if there were a, a situation where you needed to be called on because maybe you know resources were um depleted you're ready and so maybe you could describe what that that model of community resilience that you have in your mind after doing this research um, really represents. Yeah, definitely. And and just without giving away too much, you know, Sam was one of the new generation of Point Doom bombers who stayed during the fire, but there was a number of them who were not in Point Doom. And so in the aftermath of the fire, like literally the fire front comes through and the next morning, very early, you know, a bunch of their friend groups started to come back. And, and this is where they, 
really the inspiration for the new model comes from. They they come in after the fire front has come through and they do a lot of putting out spot fires. They do, they set up a relief center for people who've lost everything. They get supplies in. I mean, it was very similar to sort of what we saw in Lahaina in the aftermath of the Maui fires. And it's this sort of, um, you know, they came in and they didn't really know what they could do, but they had a lot of skills that the community found beneficial. And I think that is really the basis of this, what they call the community brigade pilot program. And it's really leveraging the skills that community members have by giving them education and training so that they can get really prepared before a fire, know how to act during a fire, and then to be able to help with these sort of post-fire activities. Um, and so it really is a model that's trying to empower neighbors to help each other, but in a way they, they developed this model with Los Angeles County Fire Department, but in a way where they are they are not part of LA County, but they're in constant communication with them and they're able to be force multipliers. Not everyone in the program, certain people who have certain roles, but force multipliers to be able to really like use that community aspect to make a make the place more resilient. Because for example, Los Angeles County is Los Angeles County Fire Department is one of the largest fire departments in the country. It's actually the second largest. It has over a billion dollar budget, 3,000 firefighters, 228 engines. That's a lot, right? But LA County is 10 million people and includes a whole mountain range. <laughs> and, you know, during the Woolsey fire, about a quarter of a million people evacuated. So a quarter of a million people 3,000 firefighters do the numbers on that. Like you, you do not, you'll never have the manpower to defend every home and save every life. And so I think what this community brigade program is trying to do is like, look, what we do have in numbers is community members, but how, how do we use them better? Yeah. I mean, is, is that really the lesson or the takeaway that you, that you hope the listeners will, will come away with? And maybe even particularly a subset of the listeners, uh, you know, those that are involved in emergency management, fire, you know, is that is that aspect of reliance, not just on the resources that are paid to do the work of, you know, firefighting or community engagement, but like it really harnessing the energy of of people who live there? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say it in a little more nuanced way than that. And, and I want to be clear, I am not a fire expert. I am not an emergency prepared uh, uh, preparedness expert. I am a journalist, um, but I have been talking with fire scientists, with LA County Fire Department, community stakeholders, nonprofits, you know, wildfire survivors, not just in California. And so I've been talking about this issue a lot. And if if there was something that people walked away specifically about the fire resiliency uh, part of this podcast, I would say one is that there's a change in mentality that's needed. Um, you know, I think one thing that surprised me was a lot of people in Malibu talked about being accountable for where you live. And I thought that was really interesting that if you live in a fire zone, you know, there are certain things that you need to do. 
and you need to be an active participant with the fire department if you're going to leave the, live there. You know, in California, insurance companies are stopping to insure. You know, like you, you, you as a homeowner really have to um, be cognizant and aware of the risk that you're taking by living there, and and be an active participant. And I think maybe the second thing is that it's not a hopeless problem, and there's actually a lot that people can do. And I think that the state is incentivized to help people. The fire department in the state do not want homes and lives lost, period. And so there's tons of initiatives and all sorts of things that that are out there, but I think there's a disconnect of how they're communicated to the public, what, what resources are available. Um, and then I think the third thing would be to be community-minded. Um, I think, you know, I was surprised at the amount of resources just knowledge resources that exist within a community. You know, one of the Point Doom Bombers was a carpenter. So we had all these power tools and chainsaws that they could use to put out the spot fires. Another person was a lawyer. And so they developed a system for how they would give out gas. Another person was a mechanical engineer. And so they knew how to safely handle gas. Another person did marine safety on film shoots. So when they were dropping the goods from boats, you know, there was actually a level of professional safety there. There was another guy who is a veteran who, you know, is a radio and communications wizard. All these resources were there. You know, they just weren't organized and educated and trained in advance. And I think if they would be, we could see different results. I absolutely loved the experience of, of following the stories that you highlight um, throughout Sandcastles. Uh, and I love the fact that it was a, a series of multiple episodes, five episodes, because, you know, you feel like uh, there's opportunities there to learn more uh, as, you know, from each episode. So um, I hope I hope our listeners will, will take uh, take the opportunity to uh, to find your podcast. So how, how can they find it? Anywhere you find your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, literally you name it, it's on every platform. And the podcast is called Sandcastles. And uh, Adriana Cargill, thanks so much for for spending a little bit of time with us and sharing uh, your experience of, of recording this, uh, this series because it's really invaluable um, telling the story of the Woolsey Fire. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov podcast.